Ahoy hoy, all you delightful little ragamuffins. I'm John Miller, and you're listening to Everybody Trades. And thank you all so much for listening to my previous episode. Got a lot of good feedback on my thoughts on GameStop stock and also short selling. People told me that was a good explanation and that clarified their thinking a little bit and that certainly is always the goal here on everybody trades is to make the complex more understandable and to clarify certainly not to mystify my listeners and i do have some follow-up thoughts on gamestop and short selling in general later in this episode and also just some thoughts on where we are currently in the stock market but before but you know what before we get there i do want to talk about the pandemic, and mostly because it has been the one-year anniversary of the coronavirus pandemic. So you know what? I thought, obviously, it's an anniversary here, not a happy anniversary by any stretch of the imagination, but a good time for me to take stock of what I got right and what I got wrong from this past year. Now, the thing that I was most correct about, quite honestly, is in the spring of 2020, summer of 2020, when the panic, when we were fully in the teeth of the panic, especially as far as the stock market is concerned, well, I was telling everybody to buy. I was telling people that you need to buy companies like, I don't know, just off the top of my head, like Adobe, that frankly... We're good stay-at-home stocks and would perform well regardless of the pandemic. But quite honestly, I just never bought into this idea that, oh, well, this pandemic is going to be so horrific that the country is basically going to shut down and 10% of the population is going to die or whatever. I was right about how the absolute most frightening projections of death for the coronavirus, just millions and millions of Americans dying, well, I said that that was overblown, and I was correct about that. But I got to say, the probably the biggest thing I got wrong is that I would have never believed that Americans would still be locked down on some level a year into this. I, I would have never imagined that this would all be still going on, that we would essentially, in much of the country, would still have indoor restaurants being shut down by the government, that there'd be enforced social distancing at large gatherings, even while people are wearing masks, that kind of deal. I just didn't see that coming. And honestly, I didn't see the probably the biggest thing I didn't see coming was I didn't see that such a large percentage of the American population would seemingly welcome these restrictions and lockdowns and, well, just sort of move with the times and the moving of the goalposts. Because if you think about it, well, obviously the beginning of this a year ago, the thing was, hey, we need two days to slow the spread so we don't overwhelm the hospitals. Well, clearly the hospitals are not overwhelmed, and frankly, except for maybe a few exceptions here and there that I may not be aware of, but for the most part, hospitals haven't even been close to being overwhelmed by this virus. So if that was the entire point, well, mission accomplished. But unfortunately, again, the goalposts just keep getting moved by the powers that be, most notably Dr. Fauci and, of course, now President Biden, who's in power. Well, we just heard President Biden, gosh, within the last week or two say that, hey, it's just another hundred days. We just need to keep doing the social distancing and all the stuff for just another hundred days. 
And I keep hearing this phrase being bandied about by the sort of doomers, I'll call them. And that's, well, we shouldn't be in, what's the rush to reopen? I'm sorry, it's been a year after two weeks to slow the spread, and we're in a rush to reopen? And now Joe Biden is saying, well, gee, maybe on July 4th, Independence Day, that'll be when we can finally get together and have some small gatherings. Well, I'm sorry, I'm doing the math, Joe, and that's actually more than 100 days out. So what do you want to bet come July 4th? There's some other semi-distant event, maybe Labor Day. They'll be saying, hey, maybe by Labor Day. I'm just telling you, the one thing I really got wrong here, I would have never predicted just how long this was going to last. If you give politicians and bureaucrats an inch, I guess they're going to take a mile, and it sure seems like so many Americans are just willing to go along with it. And don't get me wrong, on some level, I totally understand Now, obviously, there are people who have special circumstances that should be more cautious regarding this virus. But frankly, maybe that should be the case among in every flu season, for instance, too. Because as we've seen, in fact, flu deaths have gone down dramatically. Just statistically speaking, they've gone down huge. And what the proponents of masks and social distancing will tell you is that's because of, obviously, those two factors. That's why flu deaths are down. But then at the same time, if you show them the charts of deaths per million in California versus Florida, two states that have had very different restrictions throughout the past year, well, most people can't tell you the difference in those two charts. They can't, in fact, identify which state is which, and they certainly, without the dates on them, can't identify, okay, when was the mask mandate implemented? When was it lifted? Et cetera, et cetera. There is no actual statistical correlation. So what I'm saying is is both of these things can't be true. It can't be that, oh, the masks and social distancing, you see, it's not entirely working in California because people aren't following it closely enough, right? You can't say that. And then also say, well, but flu deaths are simultaneously down. You see how logically both of those things can't be true simultaneously? Because if masks and social distancing were as scientifically provable, their effectiveness as people are saying, then shouldn't that be statistically present in the charts that I'm talking about? The deaths per million, the hospitalizations per million. Because it sure seems like, I'm telling you, Google those charts right now. Pull them up. They follow the exact same curve. It's really pretty remarkable. It just seems like the virus is going to kind of do what the virus is going to do, does it not? So at this point, what we're really talking about in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's not really about science anymore. It's about values. How much do you value your own safety versus your ability to go out and actually live your life as you choose and with others who choose to interact with you. For instance, there's a lot of people in this world who I think are nutty. They're people who jump out of airplanes for a laugh. Now, I, for one, am not a big fan of heights, and I'm certainly not jumping out of an airplane. I can get my jollies in many other ways. However, Despite my own personal feelings on skydiving, I wouldn't actually have I wouldn't actually put my personal values ahead of somebody to the point where I would make it illegal for them to jump 
out of an airplane. And here's the deal with that. Science can explain skydiving. Physics can explain that when you jump out of that airplane, well, your body is going to be traveling at a terminal velocity. It's going to be traveling at whatever speed a human body drops out of an airplane. And it can also explain that, well, if you pull your ripcord at the proper time and that parachute opens at the proper moment, well, you'll probably float to your safety. In fact, your odds of surviving jumping out of that airplane go up exponentially. But clearly your odds of surviving are not 100%. Individual skydivers are not only aware of this fact, I think it's quite clear that, in fact, that slight chance of death is part of the thrill. My point is, is what part of science explains why that person is willing to take that risk and I am not? Well, there is no part of science there because that is a value judgment, an individual value judgment. And what skydivers would tell you quite simply is that the risk is worth it to them. And who are we to decide as a society, as a central authority, that those people shouldn't be allowed to take that risk? Now, you certainly shouldn't force other people to take you into this into said sky. You can't put a gun to a pilot's head and make them do anything, but that's what trade is, right? If you can find a pilot to take you up in the air, a skydiving ex- instructor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is all the peaceful process that is, in fact, free trade. And anything that honestly gets in the middle of that is aggression and should be treated as such. So quite honestly, at this point, if after a year of this pandemic, at the very least, if we can't agree that people should be allowed to assess their own level of risk, if, we shouldn't, if I shouldn't be able to open my restaurant to people or my dance studio, whatever my small business is, whatever I've got going on, my church, for instance, if I can't open my doors of worship or my doors of business to anyone who's willing to take on a risk, well, then what are we even doing, quite honestly? If Joe Biden is going to sit here and tell us, hey, maybe by Independence Day, you can gather together in small groups Well, quite honestly, if you're sitting around and waiting for the president of the United States or any bureaucrat, Dr. Fauci, whoever it is, if you're waiting around for some central authority to tell you when it's okay to celebrate Independence Day, well, quite honestly, I'm not sure you have a full grasp of what independence truly means. But you know what, with that rant... Out of the way, let's move to the stock market. And certainly the coronavirus pandemic continues to shape much of what happens in the investing world. And one thing I've noticed lately, a lot more sort of individual investors, people who are among my age group who may not have really talked about the stock market a whole lot before, are suddenly becoming interested and putting money into it. Now, a lot of that is, of course, because the stock market has had a big run, not only this past year, but the last 10 years or so, quite frankly. So that that obviously makes all the sense in the world, but also just commission-free trading. It's much cheaper and more accessible for individuals to be able to play the stock market a little bit. Now, what I've noticed is a lot of people are trading GameStop 
or these high-flying stocks that have been in the news lately, right? Well, that's all well and good. Certainly, the euphoria, if you've caught a 50% quick gainer in GameStop, you're probably going, wee, isn't this fun? Oh boy, the stock market, isn't it great? Well, quite honestly, good for you. I'm glad you made a little bit of money. Please take some profits. But quite honestly, it's time to stop looking for the next big thing on the Reddit page and time to start looking at the bigger picture. Now, without getting into too big of a macroeconomic discussion, let's just talk about money for a second and more specifically, the supply and demand of money. Now, for all intents and purposes, the supply of money is controlled by the Federal Reserve, which is for all intents and purposes controlled by the federal government. Now, I understand people say, well, the Fed's private, yada, yada, yada. Let's just stop that right now. The president appoints the the head of the Federal Reserve. So that alone makes it a political entity. We can all agree with that. It goes further than that, but we can just stop right there. Now, again, when it comes to the supply of money, despite the fact that the United States government, since the Great Recession of 2008, has printed trillions and trillions and trillions of extra dollars, well, actual price inflation hasn't been nearly as dramatic as one might expect. And there's really quite sim- there's really a quite simple Econ 101 reason for that, and that's the other side. That's the demand for money, which is something that, frankly, isn't talked about nearly as much as the money supply. But of course, demand is every bit as important as supply in an an economic equation, as we all know. And certainly, when it comes to actual currency, well, that's no exception. Now, if you think about just your own personal life for a second, this will probably crystallize demand for money as much as anything as I can. And really, demand for money, in my opinion, is based a lot on an individual's level of fear. And obviously, society, the market as a whole, its level of actual fear and economic fear. So think about it. If you have a certain amount of savings, you have a a job, you know, you're bringing in a certain amount of money every month. Well, if you're feeling secure in that job and you're thinking, gosh, in the future, I'm probably going to get a raise and it seems like my bank account keeps going up every month. Well, your fear is going to be pretty low. And when your fear is low, economically, you're more likely to make a big expenditure. Say there's a, a jet ski, I don't know, just something, something somewhat frivolous. A fun product, you know, nothing against jet skis. I'm just saying a jet ski is not exactly you know, a steak and a loaf of bread. It's not something you need to survive. So obviously, if you're relatively lacking fear economically and you feel like, hey, I'm in a pretty good spot, I can afford this jet ski or this Rolex or whatever it might be, well, then your demand for money is is relatively low. You're willing to let go of those dollars in exchange for a jet ski or whatever it might be. But on the other hand, if your company has been laying off people in your division and maybe you asked for a raise a few months back and they told you, yeah, there's no way we're going to be able to make that happen, well, then suddenly you're going to be more fearful of your earnings in the future. You're going to be more fearful that perhaps your current level of savings is not going to be able to sustain you if you lose your job. 
Well, in that case, you're much more likely to not make frivolous purchases like a jet ski, for instance. Quite simply, when you're fearful like that, your relative demand for your own money is going to be high. You're going to be less willing to exchange your dollars for products or services. Now, if you just think about this latest round of coronavirus bailouts, relief, whatever you want to call it. I don't know if it was $2 trillion, the majority of which, by the way, will not be directly going into the pockets of individual Americans whatsoever. But for the sake of discussion, let's just say it was $2 trillion. Now, on one hand, you would think, okay, obviously $2 trillion more dollars entering the money supply, well, that's got to make that's got to make inflation go up, right? That's got to mean that the prices of things are going to go up. You would think that's true, but of course, then we have to look at the at, at the demand side. What are people going to do with that money? Well, obviously, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Americans are going to make individual choices. They're going to make different choices. But in the aggregate, if the vast majority of Americans put that money in the bank and don't spend it, well, that is essentially like the money never actually hit the market, if you think about it. And that's really what, in my opinion, is sort of a microcosm of what's happened since the Great Recession. Despite all the fact that this money, there's been so much new dollars created and into the money supply, well, because demand for money has been so high, well, again, this is Econ 101. If you, just because you're creating a huge supply of something, if the demand of something is for really high as well, well, that's not going to necessarily raise the price of something, all things being equal. But what's going to happen is if suddenly, if, if Americans start feeling more optimistic, well, suddenly, if then they want to start getting rid of their savings, they want to start trading those dollars in, again, for services and products, well... I think you'll start to see inflation come back. And really, I think before the pandemic began a year ago, I think that was starting to happen. But of course, the huge shutdown of this, basically the whole country for months, for a year on end now in some places, has obviously created another massive amount of fear. But as we start coming out of this pandemic, as things are slowly but surely reopening across the country, some obviously more quickly than others, I think you'll start to see that fear dissipate. You'll start to see a lot of, frankly, pent-up demand to just get outside, go on vacation, go to a, a sporting event, a live concert, all of that stuff that, frankly, used to be a normal part of our lives. I think people want to get back to that in a big way, and I think they're going to start spending their money. And with that in mind, the the really the inflation trade has already started to happen in the stock market a little bit. There's been a rotation out of the more high-flying tech names and into the sort of your more cyclical type names, your, your big industrial companies that need a good economy, at least a, you know, a moving economy to get stuff, to actually get the kind of earnings that they need to succeed in the stock market, companies like Caterpillar, that type of deal. Well, I think eventually you got to circle back to these tech stocks, but right now that's the rotation for sure. Most importantly, I think you want to own some type of 
you got to own some precious metals. You got to own some Bitcoin, quite honestly. And, you know, that was my advice nine months ago or something when Bitcoin was maybe, I don't know, $12,000 or something. And now it's north of $50,000 per Bitcoin. Well, here's the good news. You don't have to buy one whole Bitcoin. You can just buy fractions. So I would definitely recommend that. Certainly don't put everything in it, but you got to have gold. You got to have silver. You got to have Bitcoin as a hedge. I really believe that. Again, 10% of your money, 20% of your money and all those things total, I'll bless it. No more than that though. But really beyond inflation and of course the usual warfare state, you guys know I'm always in on the defense stocks, but one of the biggest things I'm looking at right now, just as a huge trend, is still cybersecurity. I mean, we're talking companies like CACI, OKTA, FireEye, FEYE. I mean, all these companies to me are just going to do tremendously well here in the near future, just because, frankly, hacking has just gone. It's gone cuckoo at this point. If you haven't been hacked at this point, if you don't think you've been hacked well on some, on some level, you're probably naive, quite honestly. And I, I think eventually we're all going to sort of realize that, gosh, maybe this internet thing wasn't the greatest idea of all time. Now, don't get me wrong. The idea of getting online, quote unquote, and being able to exchange information quickly That's all well and good, but the idea that we're all literally sort of connected to this one network, well, I think it's going to start splintering off, if you will, into what a lot of tech experts are calling the splinter net. You know, remember, if you're you're my age, you're, you're old enough to remember AOL and CompuServe and all this stuff. Well, that kind of model may be coming back to where you essentially need different services to get on to different parts of the internet. And honestly, if that sounds relatively inconvenient, well, maybe it will be, but at least all of your information won't be stolen from you at some point. Honestly, I think the U.S. military is already starting to sort of splinter off its own its own uh, internet and online sort of capabilities in order to avoid the exact type of hacking that's happening on just a massive scale throughout the corporate world, the government world, the individual world, just all over the place. I mean, really, the the hacking, it's really gone cuckoo. And frankly, the best way to protect yourself is, well, I don't know. I'm not a tech person. So instead, I'll just be the money guy and tell you how to profit, hopefully, off of this trend. And then, well, you can take those profits and get an expert in technology, which is certainly not me. And by the way, when it comes to GameStop and short selling, just to be clear, I wasn't proposing that there should be any type of legislation done in any type of way that would help the little guy, quote unquote, because in almost all cases, that type of little legislation will actually benefit established interests over the little guy. But you know what? If if a stock exchange, a futures exchange, if they want to establish their own type of rules on short selling, what used to be called an uptick rule, where you couldn't just relentlessly short sell a position. You had to let it maybe tick up. There had to be a buy before you could sell relentlessly, that type of deal. Maybe that makes some type of sense. That's above my pay grade. But again, if that's up to the exchange itself and the members of that exchange, that's one thing. 
It's entirely another when the government's coming down and issuing that type of decree. That, that just never seems to work. And most importantly, again, it establishes, it helps the established interests over the little guy. So with all that being said, a relatively long episode of Everybody Trades today. It had been a minute since I'd been here, so I had a lot to say, and frankly, I'm hoping that all made sense. I hope I was able to bring it all together for all of you, my wonderful listeners. So until next time, I am John Miller, and this has been Everybody Trades. (laughs) 